Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says in verse 15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We have, as a culture, and I know that over the last 2,000 years, we've done this numerous times where as a, as a people, we shift from wanting to know about God and wanting to know about ourselves. And so those who are born-again believers even drift further away from knowing about God into more uh, understanding of ourselves as it relates to who God is. And before long, it doesn't take very long for us to trickle away from the knowledge of awesomeness. I mean, the enormity of God's character and nature. And we start using Scripture as a self-help book. As a, how can I be, how can I have more peace in my mind? How can I have peace in my life? How can I have peace in my finances and peace in my marriage and peace in my home? And how can I, how can I, how can I... The Bible turns into, and even prayer turns into more of life hacks, uh, looking for ways of knowing who I am and what obstacles are in my life and how I can work through some of those, with God's help, of course, with God's help. But the truth of the matter is, the Scriptures are not intended to rest alone as a self-help book. And so you can go back generations now, even hundreds of years, and notice that, that book writers or authors of commentaries and theologians will write books about the enormity of God's character and nature. And now we have the enormity of how valuable we are and how important we are and how you know, God chases after us and pursues us because we are so valuable and we are worth so much and we are the apple of God's eye. And we have to be very careful because in our minds we shift like a pendulum where it's all about us or it's all about Him. I'm afraid sometimes we don't understand how far away we get from who He is. In order for me to, and and please understand I'm speaking in extreme terms, but... In order for me to use God for my benefit, I've got to reduce Him. I've got to humanize Him. And for those that are Christians, that's dangerous. But for those that aren't even Christians, what what will happen over time is as we reduce God, we become so familiar with Him. So familiar with the sacred, we reduce him generation after generation to the point where Jesus becomes a good teacher, a moral man, an inspiration, even a hero. Someone that we can idolize, someone that we can appreciate, someone we can even adore. And thereby we limit him. We make him approachable. But what it does is it causes us to forget who He truly is. 
This has caused an increase even in atheism. And when I talk about this, I want you to understand that when the world, and I'm talking about globally, talks about atheism or the number of atheists, I mean, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of about 700 million people in the world right now that would call themselves atheists. Uh, no, 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 that's not true. 700 million people would say that they do not believe in God. And that's the important part of this. 700 million say they don't believe in God, but they're not quite ready to call themselves atheists just yet. But let me give you a real quick study just in America. This isn't global. This is just in America. In 1944, there was a study that began, and it began to ask a, a good sampling of Americans, do you believe in God? And these are the ones who said no. Do anybody want to guess the percentage of those who said no, I do not believe God in 1944? I'll give you a hint. Well, it's not really a hint. That's the answer. 1% of America said we do not, I do not believe in God. Now, while that is way too many, 1947, 3%. And then back to 1%. And then to 2%, and then to 1%. And in 2011, it jumped to 7%. From 1% in 1967 to 7% in 2011. Went all the way up to, in 2014, 11% of Americans said, we do not believe in God. 11%. Now the good news is, because of population growth in America exponentially, it's now at 10%. And I think the primary reason for that is because we have started thinking from our own perspectives, our own needs, our own desires, our own crisis, and we have forgot that God is able. We have forgot that He is supreme. We have forgot His character and His nature. And we filter Him through our own character and nature. What I want to remind you of today is that God is not trying to keep up with us. I think sometimes in our thinking, we, we tend to think that how could God possibly keep up? So when bad things happen, it's just because somebody else slowed God down. Or, you know, God's got our prayers cued and He didn't get to my prayer before I needed Him to respond. I want you to turn over to Exodus chapter 32, Exodus chapter 33. If you take notes, write those down, go back and study them for your own edification. But in, in chapter 32, Moses is about to go up on Mount Sinai. I'm not going to read a whole lot here, some in chapter 33. But Moses is about to go up on Mount Sinai to re receive the law of God. God has called the children of Israel and asked Moses to be the covenant intermediary between himself and his people. And so he's about to give Moses the law as, as he is taking them into the promised land. Well, after Moses had been gone for just a few days, the people grew very, very restless. And, and they actually had humanized God to the point, and they had become so familiar with the Egyptian gods that they threw all of their jewelry in together and they made, crafted, a golden calf 
And you remember what they were doing in Exodus chapter 32. They are praying to it and sacrificing to it and dancing around it and worshiping it and declaring it and it turns into all sorts of debauchery. Meanwhile, Moses is up on Mount Sinai asking for a very, very specific thing. And Moses has received so many signs and wonders already. But while the Lord recognizes what's going on in Israel, and he's communing personally with Moses, he tells Moses this, I'm still going to let you go into the promised land. In fact, I'm still going to drive out all of your enemies. But I'm not going with you. Now, Scripture says this was disastrous news, that God wasn't going with them. In verse 3, chapter 33, it says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. But Moses intercedes. In verse 11, it says that Moses speaks face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. These face-to-face conversations take place in the, the tabernacle and the tent of meeting as the pillar of cloud representing the presence of God descends on the tent. In, in one encounter, Moses expresses his reservation at entering into the land without the Lord. He said this in verse, six, in verse 15, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, I want to be where your presence is. If you're not going with us, I don't want to go. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? How can, how can I prove and testify that you are with me if you won't go with me? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And after listening to Moses, the Lord agrees to go with the people. Now, God doesn't change his mind here. God doesn't change his mind. If God could change his mind, he could choose better. God can't choose better. He's perfect. So God doesn't change his mind as in we change our mind because he had a better solution. God changes his mind in that what he said he was going to do was actually to bring Moses to a place. God was always going to go with them. But he says he makes it very clear it's because in verse 17, Moses has found favor in his sight. Relationship that Moses had with the Lord was unparalleled. No one on the face of the earth had ever had a relationship where they could commune with God. If you remember, but though the, the Lord could not come directly to Moses, even when they were beginning with the fiery uh, the, uh, burning bush. When fire is coming from the bush and Moses is able to hear the voice, but he doesn't even know who he's talking to. Over and over we experience that. Though Moses had this unparalleled relationship, he never was sitting directly with the Lord. So, because Moses has this familiarity with the Lord, and, and I would say closeness as a friend with a friend, Verse 18 of chapter 33, Moses, in his audacity, in his familiarity, in his uniqueness, he says, please show me your glory. 
Show me your glory. Moses, how little do you actually know me? Or, or perhaps, how highly do you think of yourself, Moses, that you could see my glory? Are you seriously thinking that you could comprehend my glory? But Lord, I've been sitting here talking to you. Yes, you have, because I have veiled my glory from you. So either Moses has this overwhelming audacity and arrogance of who he is, or he has reduced God to someone who could be approachable, someone who could be near, someone who could be close. How could he possibly think that God's glory was humanly possible? He just told him, I'm not going with you because I'd kill you. But Moses is desperate to see God's presence and I'm not sure why. He just saw the ten plagues. He just saw the waters part. Over and over and over he's seen the presence of God descend like a cloud. I mean, Moses, nobody has seen the presence of God like Moses has seen the presence of God. And what, what does the presence of God demand? What does it always want? When we are experiencing God, what do we want? More. It's never enough. Moses wants more. But look at this. Verse 20. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. It's safe for us, I think, to infer from this statement that no one can see the very essence of God. He is so glorious. He is, his glory is so infinite that we would be consumed by Him. He's like the sun. You ever try to study the sun by looking into the sun? You can't study the sun by looking into the sun or you wouldn't be able to see the sun, right? How do you study the sun? You study the sun, sun by studying it's the, the effects of the sun. You know, we study the sun's rays. We see the light where there is darkness. But to look at the sun, no way, it's impossible. On the other hand, God has promised to go with His people, but God then controls the degree of His presence. So what we've learned here is that while God may be present with us, we can't contain His full presence. It's partial presence. Anytime God shows up and communes with humanity, it's His partial presence because we can't contain His full presence. So the Lord announces His plan. I will make all of my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is in verse 19. And Moses cannot see the face of the Lord and live. And so what the Lord has told Moses he will do is he is going to put Moses on the rock. And as the Lord walks by, he's going to put his hand over the cleft of the rock and cover Moses from his glory. And after he passes by, he will remove his hand so that Moses can see the glory of God's shadow. Now this is incredible because while Moses asks, and he, he doesn't even know what he's asking for, more of God, but God decides to meet Moses where he's at. And while you can't look at me, it's for your benefit that I'm going to protect you. By the way, this is protective language in the Hebrew language. He does this to protect Moses. Not to limit Moses. Moses is already limited. 
Do you remember what happens when Moses, chapter 33, when Moses comes back down off the mountain? It says that the people had to, too bright. (laughs) Can you imagine glowing? Because he's been in the he's not even been in the presence of God. He has seen God's shadow of his back, and his hair is shimmering white. Changed his life forever. Now, this is an incredible thing to see that the glory of God that Moses is asking for, Moses doesn't get, and Moses couldn't even contain the shadow of his request. We know for elsewhere in Scripture that God does not have a body. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, there are several verses there. And then also in John chapter 4, Jesus tells us that no one has ever seen God. And the language is anthropomorphic, which just means it gives human characteristics. It talks about God's hands or God being able to see. God doesn't have hands. God doesn't have eyes. God doesn't have a back. God doesn't have wings. These are anthropomorphic language to humanize so that we can understand, not to reduce Him, but so that we can understand the character and nature of God as much as we are capable. He may not be allowed to see the Lord's face, but He may see the Lord's back. And it absolutely, while God is glorified, Moses is glorified. Now listen, I just made that up on this stage right now. I kind of cracked myself up in my head before I said it. I think one of the things that Moses realizes here, and I think he realized it pretty quick, that the more you think you can know God fully, the more mysterious God actually becomes. If Moses' encounter teaches us anything, it's that God's essence... And again, I'm not comparing us to Moses, okay? Because I know some of you, I know you, you know, I, I can be as good as Moses. Moses might be an inspiration, someone we can aspire to be or be inspired by. But not even Moses could see the divine essence and live. So we're talking about how to know, how to, how to remember who God is and how to focus life on who God is. We cannot attain the level necessary to understand, comprehend, or to know all of God. Not only is it not possible, it's not even available. I know sometimes we say, well, I'm going to study more and I want to know more of God and know more of God. We can't know all of God. We can always know more of Him, but as much as you could ever comprehend or understand, it will never be to the magnitude. Because if God revealed, if God revealed this, if God is this much, however much that is, He has only given us the capacity for this much. God hasn't revealed all of Himself to us. God doesn't need us to know Him. We need to know Him. So to the levels that we need to know Him, He has revealed Himself to those degrees. But to think that we could ever comprehend Him, He is incomprehensible. Israel doesn't fear the Lord as Moses does. Why? Because they have fallen for a substitute. Something they could touch, feel, craft, make. Do they call themselves the people of God? You betcha. They're satisfied in their worship. 
They needed a God that they could control, a God they could domesticate, a God who could allow their sin, a God that they could convince, a God who would tolerate half-hearted worship and selfishness, a God who would not demand or command or even discipline. But our God, the true God, cannot be domesticated because we can't even process Him. We don't have the processor speed. In Isaiah chapter 46 verse 5, he says through Isaiah, To whom will you liken me and make me an equal and compare me that we may be alike? What he's saying is there is nothing comparable to God. Isaiah 46 verse 7, he's talking about, he's talking about the Israelites. They are in captivity in Babylon and they've formed these other golden images and they've begun to worship these Babylonian idols, these gods. And he's, he talks about Israel hoisting them up on his shoulder and them carrying them around and they put them in... And they're just objects. He even says they've, they've crafted them themselves. They made them and now they worship them. He, he says that the Creator worships the created. I mean, how ridiculous is this? I can't even imagine a, somebody whittling a piece of wood into the form of some idol and then giving worth to that idol as anything other than art, let alone to give my allegiance to it, to sacrifice to it, to even feed it. Now, we'll give it the benefit of the doubt and say, the Lord says they worship something that can't even walk on its own. Israel struggled with this for a while. There is an apocryphal book written called Bell and the Dragon. And uh, it's, it's from Daniel's lifetime. Supposedly it's true, but it's not included in the canon of Scripture. But the story is they, they would bring in, Israel would bring in these sacrifices of food to Baal. And, and at nighttime, the dragon of Baal would become, what's it called, animated and would become alive. And all the food that they would bring throughout the day as a sacrifice, they'd come in the morning and all the food would be gone. And this is proof, folks. I mean, it's like a magician who says, pick a card and then turns around and does the trick and turns back around. So you bring in your sacrifices all day long and when you come back in in the morning after the doors were locked, all of the stuff is gone. Wow, he really does come alive at night. And so what they did is they got, Daniel, they got in, they went, took flour and they sprinkled it all over the sanctuary late at night after everybody had left. And then they left. And when everybody came in in the morning, they saw all the priest's footprints all over the sanctuary. Also another story, you've heard me talk about it with Abram. His father, Terah, actually made idols. That was his job. He owned an idol store. One day he told Abram, he said, hey, mind the store, I'm going to go on a business trip. And so Abraham took care of the store and while Terah was gone for the day, Abram went into all of the idols and just dumped them all off the shelves onto the floor and all of them broke. So when Terah came home for the night, he walked in, all of his work was collapsed on the floor and he said, what in the world happened? Abram said, I don't know. These 
Idols, they just one at a time started jumping off the shelves. Tara said, there's no way that's possible. It's just stone and wood. And Abram said to them, why are you selling them as gods? So the Lord said to them in chapter 46, Isaiah 46, verse 7, they lift it to their shoulders and they carry it and they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. But perhaps it can hear. I mean, if it's all powerful, even if it can't move, if it can just hear, it can make things happen like a genie would. But then he says, if no one cries to it, I mean, if one cries to it, it does not answer. If it does not answer, then it cannot save that person from their trouble. Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Now turn over to Isaiah 40. I'm going to work through this very, very quickly, but I want you to hear, I want you just to think about how approachable we've made God. Even in the songs that we sing, like, I won't go into any of them, but like God is just, His, his main endeavor is to make sure that we're happy and that we're taken care of and that He's like our servant. We've turned God into our servant because we've elevated our humanity and by the token of doing that, we have devalued His sovereignty. He tells us time and time again, there is none like me. Not that you can't understand, but there is none like me. I'm incomparable. You can't know me. You can't even look at my glory, let alone at my face. So again, the very fact of us being able to comprehend God, if, if there is any aspect of God's character and nature that you understand, then it's not God that you've understood. We say, well, you know, God is love. I understand love. God's love is a perfection of the love I can understand. But listen, that's not true. God's love is not a perfection of the love I can understand. I don't understand God's love at all. I don't understand it. Whatever definition I put on love... Is, I'm limited. But God's love is so, is boundless. His forgiveness, I don't know what forgiveness means. Except to the capacity that He's allowed me to understand it. Or His mercy, to the ability that I'm able to understand it. But God's mercy is unknowable. His forgiveness is unknowable. We don't even know. But God has allowed us to have a sliver. And it's in that, just that sliver that we're able to know that we don't know. That's it. That's all we can know about God is that we don't know anything about God. Isaiah 40 verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord or what a man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Think about the whole world and every nation that's ever existed. And when God thinks of it, it's like a drop in a bucket. Everything you could possibly know from every lifetime, drop in a bucket. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Think about that. 
Can we comprehend dust? You bet. Sometimes it's so small I don't even see it. This is, this is how every nation of the earth is like a piece of dust. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken to God or what likeness comparable with him? Verse 19, an idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out skillful craftsmen to set an idol that will not move. But not so with this creator. It is he who sets above the circle of the earth. I love that. This is for all flat earthers out there. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing. Listen, you can be the king of this world but you can't be the king of kings. The kings of this world are just pawns to the king of kings who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of this earth as emptiness. Look at verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is what? unsearchable. God's not just greater than us. He's not better than us. When we think of people like Superman, we see somebody who looks like us but's better. Someone who takes our limitations and does great things with it. Can see through things, fly through things, jump over things. These are all limits that we have. But when we see Clark Kent, is there anything that Clark Kent can't do that Superman can do? No, he's just one of us hidden in the crowd. And so he's approachable, he's knowable. God's not like Superman. He's not a better version of us. He's not someone who has attained something else. Like Mormons would want to have God as someone who once lived and has been elevated to the degree of his obedience to whatever other God and is now the God of this particular world. And if you can attain to that, you can be the God of your own world one day. No, God is not like us. Not just in our failure. This is not a sin issue only. This is a kind issue, a, a essence issue. You say, well, what about Adam? Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. That's right, but Adam was never like God. He was a lot more like dust than he was like God. Even before sin became an issue, we couldn't know Him except the parts He wanted to be known. He limited His. And it's not because He's threatened by us. It's because He created us with great limitation. And we can't contain more of Him than we can know. But there is so much more to Him. Listen to me closely. He's not your buddy. He's not your homeboy. You and God don't have your own thing worked out. 
You can't even know him except that he told you about himself. Think of all the names of God, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Ra, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah... There's 12 different Jehovahs on every page in the Old Testament. You can look and it's Adonai and over and over we see Yahweh and we see all of these names of God. Why so many names? Because one name can't contain His essence. One name can't contain His character. Over and over we learn new aspects of Him. And then when, when Moses said, who should I tell him sent me? He said, I am. I am what? I, I just am. Whatever I need to be, I am. It's all contained in here, Moses. You can't know about it. You can't even look at my back. And that's not because God's threatened. It's because you die. He's a different kind. When it says that he's unsearchable, that word unsearchable is actually incomparable, incomprehensible. It means he's infinite. In, there's, there's not a part of God's essence that's not infinite. There's not a part of your essence that's not finite. So to think... That we just crawl up on his lap. It's ridiculous. We, we, we love the thought of God being the hound of heaven who searches out the earth and kicks down doors just to reach that. Listen, every time, every time that you see this in Scripture, it's God telling you to, you better... You better scour the earth looking for me. Seek for me, seek for me, seek for me, seek for me. How many times do we see that? Not only in the Psalms, all of the Old Testament is seek for me, seek for me. With what? With your whole heart. Everything diligently, over and over and over. Lean not in your own understanding. and all your ways acknowledge me. Come to me, come to me, come to me. Draw near to me. Then I'll draw near to you. Seek me, seek me, seek me. And then every other page, seek me. Every other page says, you can't know me. You can't find me. I'm unsearchable. I'm unknowable. I'm incomprehensible. Wait a minute. Seek me, but, I, but you can't be found. Look for me, but you hide yourself. Isn't that odd? I want you to notice that every time in God's infinite wisdom... Infinite love, infinite forgiveness, infinite grace, infinite mercy, infinite everything He is. He's infinite. He's omnipotent. He's omnipotent. Every ounce of power, even the power that you see demonstrated today, it's, it belongs to Him. It's a part of His essence. In fact, you look throughout all of Scripture, every time God gives something, He gives According to, not never out of. We give out of. If you were to ask me for money, I would give you money out of my money. That's a reduction in my money. Will I ever build that money back up? I can build that money back up. I can, I can be right back to the same level I was. 
It may take a minute. I think sometimes that's what we reduce God to, is that when God gives mercy to one, He has to withhold it from another because there's this great balance in the world. Every time God gives, it's in accord, according to. According to His love. He loves according to His love. He forgives according to His forgiveness. Which just means that the very forgiveness He gives is out of His essence. But it doesn't reduce it. Because it's infinite. A lot of, I think we have our relationship with Him backwards. There's a lot of people who try to understand God so that they can believe God. You know what I mean? People who, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study. I've seen people go to Bible study their entire life but never become more like Jesus. They desire more truth, but they don't necessarily become more like Jesus. Why is that? Well, because you can't, you can't understand God in order to believe God. The just shall live by faith, which means we believe first. And it's out of believing that we become like Him or learn about Him. It's through our sacrifice and through our giving, through our serving one another. That's how we become more like Him, not by knowing. That's why you will never win someone to Jesus by winning an argument. It's because you can't respond spiritually to a logical argument. It doesn't work that way. But God is at work bringing people to a place of belief first and then understanding. Psalm 105 verse 4, Seek the Lord, seek His presence continually. And then Jesus said, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Wait a minute. God says, Seek me. Continually, Jesus said, I'm already here. And I'll never leave you. It doesn't compute. It doesn't compute. Seek me, seek me, seek me. You'll never be able to see me. You'll never be able to know me. You'll never be able to understand me. And then Jesus shows up and says, If you've seen me, What? You've seen the Father. In Him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Over and over in the New Testament we find out all of a sudden that the Father who is unsearchable, unknowable, incomprehensible, diligently asks us to draw near, to come close, to seek Him, all of a sudden became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the One sent by the Father. Right? All of a sudden, for us to be able to draw near to God, we have to draw near through Jesus. And the only way that we can draw near to Jesus is to draw near by the calling and the wooing of the Spirit of God. And so God Himself, the Godhead is... Listen, we need to understand the enormity of what we don't even know. We don't even have the capacity... We need to think about that when we sit down to Scripture thinking that we could figure Him out. It should create this holy curiosity to know as much about Him as we can and to know that there's an iceberg under that that is just mysterious. These are some of the things that we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks that hopefully will give us 
a new, older view of meeting God all over again. Because I'm afraid that we've become so familiar, we have forgotten Him. And we're crafting idols out of gold and stone and sheet metal and brick and our clocks and our watches and our calendars and our money. And we dance around them and we sing around them and we sacrifice. Well, we call ourselves the people of God. But all those things just sit there. All the while, this unknowable, unsearchable, incomprehensible God is at our at our hand, at our reach through Jesus Christ. But we use Jesus almost like a genie. Help me with this. Help me think about that. I remember, I remember, and I'm super young. <laughs> Boy, that didn't used to be funny. That's sad. <laughs> I remember when we would have prayer meeting and we would pray for lost people to know the Lord. And now we pray for sick people. Does that tell you anything about how our shift from understanding the enormity of God to just felt needs? I feel, I think, I want, I need. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Listen, I think we're satisfied with so much less. The incomparable. I have been so humbled by my own arrogance to ever pat ourselves on the back and to think that we have figured anything out about God. I think that's the whole point of the book. Is here I am, and you can't know me except by Jesus Christ. He has made him known. And he did not count it as robbery to do so, to take away from him. Matthew eleven twenty seven, the one to whom the Son reveals him. You can see the glory of the Father by looking at Jesus. In fact, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image, the expressed image of the fullness of God. This is one of the reasons why it is so powerful when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can, what? See the Father, know the Father, understand the Father, except by me. Lord, we thank you for your truth this morning. And may we not forget that you are not like us. But everything that we need to know, you have, you have revealed to us through Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to draw unto Him, to draw near unto Him. Lord, help us not to only draw near to Him in presence, but help us also to, to bring other people into that presence as well. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. And, and I'm grateful that it is an endless supply. 
So Lord, today we repent of our arrogance. And we ask the same thing that John the Baptist, who by your own admission, no man greater born of woman than John the Baptist said, you must increase and we must decrease. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc. Thank you.